Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Aiden. Aiden. Coughlin, the founder and creative partner at Far From Avocados. Aiden, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. You're aware of the form of the show, so we start with getting to know you a little bit, and then we go into the podcast. Um, I know you went to St. Andrew's uh, Secondary School, so I'm assuming you grew up in Dublin. If you didn't, you can correct me, but what was life like growing up back then? Any favourite stand-up memories? I will correct you. I grew up in Bray. I grew up about 50 metres south of the Dublin border. Um, and that is a very, very important 50 metres to me every September when I will gladly cheer against whoever dubs Dublin are playing. Uh, I went to primary school in Bray, um, had a fantastic time growing up there. One of my, uh, my, my anti-dub sentiment actually comes from the fact that when they won the All-Ireland in 1995, they brought the Sam Maguire Cup to my primary school in what I felt was a, an attempt to, you know, get some of the lads to switch over to the other side, maybe flog a few shirts. So I've uh, I've never really uh, <laughs> never warmed to them since, um, but uh, no, I'm uh, I've I grew up in Bray, um, mm. Cork family originally, so that was sort of uh, you know drilled into me. I kind of like these uh, these people who grew up, grew up in cities like Boston and New York, you know, but they're they're learning Irish trad music and everything, you know. I'm there in Wicklow at the age of four, singing the banks of my own lovely Lee. Um, Great childhood there, uh, particularly a primary school experience, very much based around um, music and sport, mm. uh, which are my two sort of abiding passions uh, in life to this day. Um, I was not much of a sports player, but I was a sports spectator, um, even at the age of 10. Uh, I knew I, I was not one of those kids who felt I'm going to grow up and be a professional footballer. I sort of knew the horse had bolted on that one, probably when I was around nine. Um, but I definitely had, uh, I, I definitely was into my uh, music, my singing, I was in choirs and musicals and all that sort of thing, uh, which mm. I enjoyed massively, got some great experiences there, uh, was on the, the Late Late more than once, I won't tell well. you what, I won't tell you the dates, uh, because I know someone then will try and dig up the archives and I just can't have that. Um, then from there, yeah, I went to St. Andrews in Dublin, um, had to cross the border every day, uh, which was obviously a very traumatic experience heading into, you know, enemy territory. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I made good with it. Uh, there I kind of, I expanded primarily upon the sort of the uh, performance and, um, you know, acting and music, again, stayed a very big part of my life there. Mm. Um, but really at that point, the the sort of the the eternal crossroads that I've been at that I had been at for such a long time sort of began. My CAO, um, you know, I was uh, listening to um, your episode with Colm O Colm O'Reilly, sorry, the Business mm. Post, uh, yeah, yes. um, and he was saying like his CAO form was business, 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 business. Mine was, you know, I think law was in there. I think something scientific was in there. Jesus. Media arts in DIT, now TU Dublin, which I ended up doing. Um, it's now called film and broadcasting. That was in there. Drama and Trinity, everything. So it was a bit of a mishmash, which at the time, I think I saw that as a bit of a character weakness. And now looking back, you know, I actually think it was one of the things that set me on the path to, to 
being a little bit interested in a lot of things, which is one of the things that enabled me to to uh, have the career that I ended up having. Um, in terms of early influences on the person, I suppose I am now. I would have to put it down to the music part of me. Not only because I became, you know, I, I really started my career as a music journalist. Um, you know, so that that's obviously a crucial sort of functional element. But also, I suppose from a very, very early stage, I was listening to a lot of music, like a mm. lot of music. Um, you know, my dad's vinyl collection, every CD that came into the house, I just consume, consume, consume almost obsessively. And because I did that so much, I really started to kind of think a lot about what it is that makes not good or bad music, but music that people like, music that people, you know, are maybe split on. Um, what's the anatomy of a great song? What's, you know, both in terms of the composition, in terms of how it's recorded, how it's performed, everything. And I, I'm not going to say I was like, you know, at the age of nine, listening to What's the Story, Morning Glory with a notebook and kind of jotting it all down. But I think I was internalizing a lot of it. Um, that idea of breaking things down into core components and sort of looking under the hood is something I'm still fascinated with. And you hear about the likes of Steve Wozniak in his garage and he was deconstructing, you know, radio sets or FM transmitters at, at whatever age or these tech people who were taking apart and rebuilding computers. I was kind of doing that with, in my case, music. Now, I didn't grow up to be a musician and I, I don't, I'm not even a particularly prominent, you know, uh, prolific um, player of music, but that idea of breaking things down into core components and then rebuilding them and understanding, having taken it apart, what goes on in there uh, is something that's sort of seen me through to this day. Interesting. A lot to unpack there. Um, you mentioned the border, but mm -hmm. growing up in Bray, Strangely enough, I'm not probably not as close to the Dublin border as you are. I'm maybe yeah. two, three kilometers, but um, interesting one as well because the people of Meath don't really want to accept you as being a real person from Meath because you're on the border, but the people of Dublin will never accept you as a dub. So you're kind of in this no man's land of like not being accepted as a dub, but also not being accepted as a Meath person. So what do you call yourself? And then to make things even more confusing, both my parents are from Kilkenny, so I support Kilkenny. So People will see me walking around with a toast with a Kilkenny jersey on going, who does that man, like, how? But anyway. And you were born in England. And I was born in England as well. I was born in Leicestershire, which probably doesn't make it even easier as well. So, mm, mm. Uh, And I'm moving to Dublin soon as well. So who do I, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I live in Dublin now and I've kind of just let myself blend in amongst the people. I don't, you know, I, obviously my, my antipathy towards Dublin is almost 100% a joking sort of like. Yeah, 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 same and it's, it's more when people kind of make the assumption that it's where I'm from, I kind of go, oh, no, no, no. Um, it's funny actually that you say that because I've always found that Bray in itself has an identity that is neither Wicklow nor Dublin. Um, and it's mm. one of the towns actually in Ireland that is most, I would say, disassociated. County identities are obviously very strong in Ireland, primarily because of the GAA. Um, mm. And perhaps it's because Wicklow wouldn't have such a strong identity in that sense. Um, you know, in both codes, it wouldn't be, certainly in the men's uh, game, wouldn't be that prominent. Um, Bray has sort of fostered an identity of itself. And it's something I really, you know, so my early experiences going back to music was um, 
my the first company I ever set up was a music management company uh, with some mm. friend, a friend of mine from St. Andrews. He was in a band. Um, and then once they started to get serious about it, I started working alongside him properly on the uh, PR and marketing side of things. And then eventually on the booking and the logistics and recording and stuff like that. And they were one of these bands who really wanted to make a certain type of music, but didn't want to be, you know, big. And I was like, that is absolutely fine, but you probably don't need someone who is as into the management side of things as I am. So I set about trying to find another band and I went all over the country, um, you know, quite, you know, quite literally like up as far, you know, to Loud, I went down to Kilkenny, I went down to Cork, um, Mm. you know, I went out to Galway once and I was just checking out all these other bands and I was like, what's this? You know, I had visions of, you know, a young Brian Epstein encountering the Beatles in the Cavern Club and, you know, and it was actually when I was back in my local in Bray, the Harbour Bar, that this band got up on stage and knocked my socks off in a way that I just couldn't believe like their material now they were raw but their material was absolutely fantastic and I'd love to tell you that they're a household name today um that's not the way things went uh, and you know and, and very often it isn't um they went on to you know have a, a decent degree of success peak and trippers they were called they, they were called big September for a while after that but they're um that then threw me while I was in college at the time threw me into a world of I don't think like the idea of running my own business had ever even crossed my mind up until then. It's not something, you know, I always say if anyone, you know, if anyone says I want to be an entrepreneur when I grow up, do not trust that person. You know, similarly, if anyone says they want to be Taoiseach when they grow up, you know, they're, they're probably not going to become Taoiseach. And if they do, we should all be terrified. They just Um, want power. You know, so it's one of those things that has to land itself in your lap. And this was the first time. Yeah. I still, you know, I, I, I was in college and then later I had a job while I was doing this, but it was also something that, it was so self-determined and the idea of not having a boss sort of opened itself up to me then. Now it was a you long like time that? before I came back to it, but it was a, it was a sort of, you know, I, I had to kind of work out, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anyone to kind of tell me, this is how you manage a band. This is how mm. you get a band from A to B. I just had to sort of work it out myself. And it wasn't, I'm not saying that as a sort of a, oh, well done me. I, you know, cause I made so many, I made way more mistakes than I got things right. But, it was the thing that uncovered to me that you can work things out yourself. There doesn't have to be a predetermined route. You can use a combination of common sense and maybe some a little bit of research and some subject matter expertise, you know, and even sort of, even though I was on the business side of management, my music brain was still able to kind of align what they were playing with the sort of the audience that might like them and so on. And if you put all these things together, you can carve out your own path. And that was a sort of a, that was an interesting moment for me. It is possible for sure. Um, so I have a question around your experience at DIT. Before I get into that, I, I, I do want to make a remark on Wicklow. It, it's definitely a county that is um, underappreciated out there if you're into scenery and hiking. Um, oh. My girlfriend's parents live on the, on the, up the Dublin Mountains next to Crua Woods. And, uh, Often when I'm up there on the weekends, we'll go for a hike and most of the time it's usually in Wicklow and it's a beautiful, beautiful county. Yeah, it really is. I mean, look, it has, a, it's, it has the, the, the nickname of the Garden of Ireland. So I suppose it's, mm. it's, it is, it's appreciated in one sense, but I think a lot of people know it's a nice looking place, but really once they get there, they're like, oh my God, this is like, this is American National Park. This is Yellowstone level of like absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, come to Wicklow. 
T, uh, DIT, I was going to say TUD, but I'm assuming it was called DIT while you were there. It was also That's called right. DIT while I was there. Uh, you said you studied media arts. Yes. What led you to pick that? Was that just because you were interested in music? I know that you had a load of different things down on your uh, CAO, but what led you to pick that? And did, did you ultimately enjoy it and get anything from it? Oh, I, th- I thought it was fantastic. Um, and actually, it's as the years go by, I appreciate it more and more. So what led me to pick it? I really, really don't know. And what I do know is that it was second choice after drama until the day before the change of mind forms were permitted in the CAO. And on that same day, I auditioned for the acting degree in Trinity. And mm. I've done a lot of auditions. I still act to this day. I'm you know, involved in amateur drama societies and stuff like that. Mm. Um, that audition was by far the worst audition I've ever done in my life. Like it was so bad, nothing about it went wrong. And it was sort of, I was even looking at them in the middle of it. It was a passage from Macbeth and then another one from um, a Tom Stoppard play. And I was actually looking at them going like, do you even want me to continue? And they didn't kick me out of the room, you know, which I think was to preserve my 18 year old uh, sense of self. Uh, but I, I kind of took it away. now to do drama in doing drama it was never necessarily about becoming an actor it was about you know um working in the performing space uh from you know music to theater everything in between all still like i say big interests of mine Mm. but i realized that there were people around me that had something that i didn't much as i i had the same sort of self-awareness to realize you know at the age of nine i wasn't going to be a professional footballer um i kind of realized no do you know what if i do this I'm all for a challenge, but if I do this, it's going to be a constant uphill struggle. I'm going to be trying to do something that I'm not really, you know, that is always going to be an interest, always probably going to be a hobby, but is never going to be something where I am, you know, up there. Um, Media arts, the media in general, the media landscape, uh, my dad, my granddad, my great granddad, my great great granddad, all journalists, um, all with the examiner actually up until me, um, were media was something that was just part of the fabric of my being um it was something i kind of understood in a way that i thought everyone you know was the same for everyone it didn't occur to me that because not everyone's dad worked in a newspaper not everyone came home with one copy of every single newspaper Mm. at the end of the day so there was the guardian there was the telegraph there was the times uh there was the irish times there was the london indie the indo the herald and they were all there in the house and I go through them all and I kind of like, I'd understand the, I don't think I'd understand. I'd notice the, the differences in how things were presented. And this was something that was, um, you know, of interest to me. It was a, it was a place where I felt at home. Um, I've always been interested in writing, probably more so in editing than writing. Um, and I thought, you know, that's one that I can, I can get into that. I, I've also had like a, a lifelong, um, you know, passion for radio. Uh, I did my transition year work experience into the AFM, like, you know, and even at that point, that was one of the few courses that was focused on radio, which is what I ended up doing my speciality in. Uh, my final year project, to loop back, was a feature documentary on Bray Wanderers, um, the club that is now no more, sadly. I saw um, that. Yeah, but um, so that was, a, that was an area. So it, it's now called Film and Broadcasting, which maybe gives a better indication of what it is, but what the new name doesn't I think capture is the level of theoretical media studies that went into it now at the time you can imagine 
we wanted to get mics in our hands. We wanted to go to the edit studio. We wanted to get on college radio and make documentaries and everything. And this idea of sitting in a room and talking about the public sphere and, you know, Jürgen Habermas and Chomsky and all these people was just like, oh, what the hell is this all about? Like, give me a microphone. Um, like with so many of these things, it's only in the years after that you actually realize that you know so much about landscapes and the way people interact with content and the way people interact and interpret things and, you know, denoted meanings, connoted me, all this sort of thing. It was only later that I kind of really understood how much that had stood to me and that it gave me an edge over other people who, you know, not everyone, some, some people have this built into their brains in a way mm. that is just, you know, remarkable, but it certainly gave me an edge over other people who maybe just learned the craft, but not the underlying kind of foundations underneath it. Well, let me ask you this then, because there's a couple of things I want to unpack here, starting with the acting side of things. Mm-hmm. There's, there's moments, and I've had many a points with a, a good friend of mine sitting on the couch behind you, where we talk about a variety of different topics. And one of them was, how do you know when to call it a day on something, even if you are like, it, it, like you're so passionate about it, you like it, but you're just not good enough to to make it, or it's not clicking with an audience. For example, you start a podcast and on wine, and eight months on the road, the listenership figures are not getting any bigger. You're putting 30, 40 hours a week into it. It comes a time where you're just gonna go have to go. I'm gonna have to pull the plug on this at a certain time. Or when it comes to football, you may be really wanting to make it, but you're just not getting that bite. There comes a time where you know, there's so much, only so much time in the week that at some point you're going to have to make the decision. And not all people do get to that place where they're comfortable making the decision. Um, how was it for you when you came to the realization that there's people out there that are better at this than you and it would be potentially possible to make it in that specific area, but it incredibly hard and not something that you'd enjoy. That can't be easy to step away from if you put so much time and effort into it. Some people will just say in their head, I've put four years of my life into this. I cannot turn around because I'd look like an embarrassment to people. Yes. Um, I suppose <laughs> you didn't see that audition I did. Um, <laughs> so, um, I think like, Look, you could put this two ways. One is actually that I took a coward's way out. I was an 18 year old. I made a rash decision based on a bad audition. That was one day and it was one out of many auditions that I'd done. I I had done like a load of plays in school where, you know, I'd gotten great feedback on my performances and all that sort of thing. I had a bad day and I changed the course of my life to, you know, based on that one thing. I don't think that's an accurate read on it. I think that my reasoning for stepping away uh, was maybe that unlocked something that was already there. Yeah. Um, to go back to your like main question or say the, you know, the podcast about wine, the football or whatever it might be. I suppose you have to look at process versus outcome. Yep. If you're doing that podcast and it's giving you an excuse to, you know, uh, try a load of different wines, maybe even, you know, if you really want to stretch it, uh, buy them through a company or write them off as uh, expenses and save a little bit of tax on it. Um, and if it's giving you a, an excuse to do that and talking about it in the same way, and I think I've seen you mention on LinkedIn, like that doing this podcast, obviously, you know, there's the number side of it and everything, but for you, it's a chance to talk to three mm. entrepreneurs or senior managers or whatever the case may be a week. And that in itself is 
in many ways worth as much, if not more, than whatever the end product of the, you know, whatever end goal you may have for the podcast. Now, it's important to set targets if, if that's what you want to do. If you're staking your career on a wine podcast and if it's going to be your only source of income and if it's going to be, yeah, then at a certain point you have to call it. Um, and that can be a very difficult thing to do. But if it's not the end goal, then it's not as difficult to do because you can just keep doing what you're doing. Mm. What made the decision around drama and acting and media and so on so easy for me was that A, my CAO was such a hodgepodge anyway that like I really was quite undecided. You know, like I said, law was another one that was right mm -hmm. up there. Media was something I really wanted to do. It was kind of a, I was, I was making a 50-50 decision and I decided, right, I'll go the other way. The other thing was that I knew that like, while this, if you give up on say something on your CAO form like science or even like law, it's not necessarily an interest you can pursue. You know, I, I kind of thought like, look, what I'll do is I'll go to another college I'll do another course that I'm probably better disposed at my life in terms of getting grades and getting marks and, you know, learning and the career that comes after it even will be that little bit easier, but I'll still get to do dram sock. Um, so I, I, I suppose without maybe consciously articulating as such at the time, I thought I'm going to focus here on outcome rather than process. Smart. And the process will follow. And that's what I'd say to anyone in that situation, I suppose, if they're if they're banging their head off a wall, like if you're describing this banging your head off a wall, it's probably mm. not a good thing. But if you're working towards something, how important is the end goal? How important is it to you that you become the top rated wine podcast on, you know, Apple? Or how important is it to you that you have this little bit of time set aside every week that you can justify yourself to yourself in a way that you can't really if you're just drinking wine on your own in a house? Um <laughs> That's probably worth yeah. as much, if not more, to that person in that situation. So you've got a lot of experience in journalism. Looking at anyone looked at your LinkedIn page will see, you know, journalist at uh, Independent News and Media, head of yeah. digital uh, news talk, group yeah. editor at Love and Media Group. I believe you did an internship, if I'm not mistaken, before that at News Talk. With, That's um, right, yeah, during college, yeah. Yeah, um, so... With all of that, speed has to be important in an industry like that. Mm -hmm. um, how, what, when you look back at your, I must say, what, loving media, you were two years there, yeah. head of digital news talk, you were over a year there, you were a year at uh, uh, independent news and media. So that's th three, oh, four years in total. Years I was five years at the end, though. Five years at the end. Oh, I do yeah. see a second thing here. Yeah. Sorry. Um, if, if you add up, all you know that's nine years then in total thinking of your current role now at uh far from avocados are there kind of one or two skills or behaviors that you learned from your time in journalism that you're able to carry over to far from avocados whether that was i don't know if you managed a team while you were in news talk if you were head, head of digital and how to work with people and communicate with people or there was one or two skills that you learned from you know the importance of speed or perfection or uh, gets in a nutshell or mm -hmm. is there anything you carried over from those nine years that you can see still stood with you when you started far from avocados almost everything like far from avocados started as a you know i suppose we we, we would be a, a content marketing agency is how we describe ourselves but um 
the emphasis very much initially at least being on content until we you know enhanced and, and brought forward the sort of the marketing structures to build it into um when i was in my first job after the indo after five years in the indo was with a social media agency simply zesty and mm. the reason i was brought in there really was you know the logic was if you're good at writing headlines which is what i was you know i was a production editor in the in the independent and yeah there were there were a lot of other skills there there was you know there was managing a team there there was coordination there was you know bringing together deadlines all that sort of thing um but a lot of it was like you know I'm pretty good at distilling a complex story into a snappy headline. Therefore, social media, you know, good, natural next passage. Uh, I had a lot of reasons for moving on, uh, mainly, well, almost all to do with the industry rather than the, the place of work itself. The Indo is a place I have a lot of fondness for. Um, but the core kind of carryover there was bringing that. And then I got into the marketing world for the first time. Mm. And it was the first time I'd been in a world where people didn't, like there was a very talented team there, a really, really talented team that I learned a lot of things from. But the overriding attitude, even in dealing with our clients and so on, was it, it, it was sort of back to front. It was like, let's think of what we want to say and then say it. It was it was outwards. And all the discourse around social media back then was, oh, it's a two way conversation and building a community and stuff like that. This is like 2013, kind of that early era stuff. And I was like, are we thinking about what? the audience actually wants? Are we kind of thinking about what it is they want and maybe a way that we can think about what they want? And now, look, this is a given in terms of inbound marketing, in terms of content marketing, in terms of, you mm. know, this is not, I'm not saying this as a sort of an innovative thing now, but certainly back then it was something that, it was a way that people didn't really think of. And because I'd come from that journalism world, um, it was the sort of natural way I thought of. I was like, let's position this in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can digest, in a way that suits them contextually. Um, let's remember that content is the sum of many different parts. So when I'm designing a page in, um, in the Indo, I was kind of thinking, how does the headline interact with the image? How does the caption enrich the image? What's the reader, what questions are they gonna have when they read that headline? How do we mm -hmm. answer them in the stand first? How do we kind of suck them in with the lead paragraph if I'm subbing that? All that sort of, all those questions that I was asking all the time. Um, now that's called content design. And it's a, you know, it's a sort of an offshoot of UX um, and sort of mm. with a little bit of content strategy in there. But back then it was just sort of, I don't know, it was the way I, I was taught to do things. It was the way I was kind of um, trained. So I went back to journalism after that. While I was in Communicore, I got much more involved on the commercial side of the house, and I'd maybe picked up a lot of that from the agency side, you know, things like billable hours, even things like KPI. I did not know what KPI stood for for a good six months into Simply Zed, way beyond the point where it was acceptable to ask. I knew yeah. what it was. I did not know what the letters stood for. So I kind of exposed myself to the commercial side of things then, and I kind of realized for the first time that they don't have to be enemies. You don't have to be creative or effective you don't have to be artistic or business-minded you can actually bring the two together quite effectively um during I, I suppose you mentioned speed you know speed was very important like that that sort of idea of being able to turn around something quickly which is really down to i suppose getting the core elements in place first and then building out from there so for instance sorry go on I was going to say when I when I mentioned speed, what my head was more on. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if you can f 
find where your uh you know ideal prospect is spending time yeah. and beat your competition to that let's say platform mm-hmm. the the advantages in your hands so much so for 2016 to 2019 linkedin you're in b2b sales and you're on linkedin you've got a huge advantage if you know how to leverage linkedin because you know the audience is there but your competitors are not necessarily adapted to it yeah. 2020 to 2021 tiktok if you're a a commercial brand and you can tap into the minds of how some of the talent nowadays with 16 to 18 year olds scares me but if you can tap into that you the you, you are centuries ahead of, of most other brands so yeah. when i said speed i meant like speed to platforms and taking advantage of that yeah absolutely and and like i think that's it's all based around the same sort of idea which is and I, I find that there are parallels between kind of the ways I do things, whether they're, you know, so the speed, let's stick with the example of speed of getting a story up online, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, we talk so much in business about marginal gains, right? And marginal in- incremental gains are obviously massively important. And as someone who's very into fitness, you know, I, I, I see they're massively important, right? But sometimes we talk about marginal gains so much that we forget about what the block of wood or the you know the block of stone that we're trying to gain upon is so let's use the example first of getting a story online what we do is we you know we 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 get the let's let's assume for the sake of argument let's leave the the elements like um you know fact checking and verification off the table let's say that uh very like a the government has issued a press release or someone has issued a press release, right? So we don't mm-hmm. need to double source. We don't need to do some of these things, right? We need to, this is just pure information-based stuff. We need to get the three kind of bullet points of that into a piece on our CMS with a headline and an image and get it up. That's it. Like that is absolutely it. From there, then we can go, then once that's up, we've bought a little bit of time and we can then start calling people. We can start talking to people. We can start getting some insight. We can get some sort of background on it. We can get maybe live images as opposed to the stock image we used the first time. We can start building on that. And then we can start to differentiate ourselves versus all the other people who have published it. But the first thing is, is that speed. What you're saying with the platforms is exactly the same thing. Mm. It's this idea of let's, let's get started now. And then let's, you know, I mean, how many times you see written on LinkedIn about like, look, if you want to go and do, uh, um, if you want to go and do a podcast, the best way to do it is to go and do a podcast. Mm. If you want to write a blog, the best way to do it is go write a blog. Um, and I think we all kind of say, we all repeat the mantra of progress, not perfection. But when it's our reputation and our sort of ego on the line, it's kind of hard to do that. It's hard to put something out there that we know doesn't represent even our best work or maybe work that matches the stuff that we observe um, and that we see other people doing. I'm victim to it myself. I'm massively victim to it myself, uh, particularly when it comes to creating music and stuff like that. I'm kind of, it it doesn't sound like the stuff I listen to, therefore it's not good enough for anyone to hear. Rubbish. Uh, But it's, you know, it's still something that I can't really get past. So in terms of moving platforms, in terms of, it is about, if you if you if you reel that if you if you bring that one step back then what allows you to do that is a, a really really solid foundation that enables that ability to try something new 
or to try a new platform or to try because if you're still as you said like 2020 to 2022 if you're still foundering on linkedin and you haven't really kind of got that yet Mr. A, you're not really going to have the confidence to jump onto TikTok because you haven't perfected this platform that's been, you know, knocking around for a few years. And B, there's probably a reason why you haven't actually when, you know, mm. it's become such a sort of a formulaic, straightforward play at this point that you haven't got that. So why would you? So the speed for me was always kind of accepting that if I could get 80% of something right or even 60% of something right, um, I'd be able to cobble together the rest. Now, I don't want to romanticize that idea because that has led to some really, really difficult times um, in my life, in my career when I, you know, because we, we glamorize that sort of learning process. We glamorize this idea of throw yourself out there and, 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 and then the rest will kind of come together. We throw in that little line of the rest will come together almost as an afterthought. That mm. is the really, really hard part. That is the bit For where sure. that's the long evenings. That's the failure. That's the failure in front of other people. It's the, you know, in, in the previous jobs was where I was asked to do something that my manager might just assume I knew how to do. And I, like I said, with the KPI thing, literally didn't even know what it meant. Well, I'll ask you this question though. Yeah. Um, founder and creative partner yeah. at Far From Avocados. I've got three final questions for you. One of them is mm -hmm. you'll do a much better job of giving a 30 second commercial of what it is that you guys do. So I'll let you take the microphone now and tell that. And then I'll follow up with two further questions. Yeah, absolutely. So we're a content marketing agency. We were established in 2017. Um, it was after I'd been doing some consultancy, having left Love in Dublin ahead of the birth of my uh, son, who's now five, um, yes. which is crazy. Um, we, I had been doing some content consultancy and I realized that there was something in this, that this kind of what I'd mentioned before, this kind of journalistic approach to content of saying like, how is it that people, how do we make this content from a brand something that people actually want to read as opposed to something we're sort of shoving down their throats? This is something that particularly with commercial and native content in Love and Dublin, which I oversaw in my role as editor, um, I'd really kind of focused on a lot. So as I developed and honed that, I realized that, yeah, there was something in this that was more than just me, you know, kind of writing proposals, maybe doing a bit of content, hiring an old freelancer or whatever. Um, timing was very, very good, threw ourselves into it, had a good first year, a very, very challenging second year, um, which was the result of a whole number of things. And it's, mm. it's, it's second album syndrome, really, you know, it's like we, we get the confidence of the, the boost of the, you know, the early lift. And then you kind of, you crack on on that basis and then things get a little bit more complicated and you start working with bigger clients who are a little bit harder to manage and stuff. Uh, but we made it. Um, we now have a team of nine. We have some fantastic clients. We have uh, Glen Bay, we have uh, Cisco Foods, Fexco, um, Cision, UCD. Yes. We're working with Christmas FM at the moment. You know, some really, really great names now um, that I wouldn't have really have dreamt of in the early days. And essentially what we do is we're, we're a marketing agency, ultimately. I don't like saying we're a content agency because that sounds like more we're like a studio. Now we produce the content, we make the content. But ultimately what we do is we solve business problems using content. Uh, we say that, you know, your audience or your prospective customers or your prospects, however you want to define it, they are here and you want them to be here. And these are the content tools and the digital tools that we're going to use to get them from A to B. That's the very kind of simple way of, of, of looking at it. In terms of 
the more ins and outs of it, what we're constantly doing is we're breaking these content pieces down into small digestible chunks. Going back to what I was saying at the start about me listening to Beatles records and kind of trying to work out what made them good and what made them, you know, work or not work, although they always work. Um, and what we're doing is we're bringing the audience, we're, we're breaking the audience's journey down into those chunks and we're aligning content and messaging with each of those stages. Um, it sounds very simple. On paper, it is very simple. Getting it right is a lot more Difficult, complex. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bought into content and creating content. I, I can see the doors that it opens from just, you know, this podcast alone, I've had over 160 guests this year. I've tapped into many of those in the past to get introductions to future guests. And it's much easier to get someone on if they've been referred from a colleague or friend they know. Yeah. Uh, I've been able to tap into guests in the past to get insights that I otherwise wouldn't be able to access. I've yeah. started to work with a number of the uh, podcast guests. Uh, I can see it on my father's podcast. He's a leadership podcast and he's got six new corporate clients in the last 12 months that tie back exclusively to his podcast. Yeah. Uh, daily snippets as well as important factor to grow the podcast. So I'm bought into the whole content side of things, but this is probably a twofold question. One, I don't see many people create content or brands or businesses. And those that do, I think mm -hmm. they play it safe and their content doesn't really stand out. Mm -hmm. um, so from someone who owns marketing agency, content agency, why might a business consider going to the likes of yourselves to help with content? Like how can content help them? Ultimately, they all they probably care about is bottom line revenue. How can content help contribute to adding X amount to the bottom line revenue? So I've resolved to never answer a question by saying it depends, but in this case, it really does depend. Um, it depends on whether you are a e-commerce client, for instance, selling, uh, you know, maybe even impulse purchases or, you know, low to medium value purchases. Maybe you're ent selling enterprise software. Maybe you're selling, you know, standard uh, customer, you know, B2C software. Um, what I will focus on here, though, is what unites them all. And that is propagating digital content mm -hmm. in a digital marketing structure. And it is the two things. It is bringing those two things together is the crucial part. It is the space between. Um, so, for instance, you mentioned, like, you know, companies are playing it safe with content because they're putting it out there. They're probably a lot of the time they're trying to kind of sort of please everyone. A lot of the time it's perhaps a kind of a, a lack of creativity. Sometimes it's sort of insight, you know, sometimes the playing it safe is because they can't really work out how their audience sees them. So they sort of give a, a diluted version of themselves facing out. There's a lot of reasons why that happens. Mm. But ultimately the reason why it's a lot, more often than not, the reason why content isn't effective is actually down to the structures that it's living in. So if you're investing heavily in a video that is, um, you know, deep diving on a certain aspect of your business, or even, you know, as, as we'd kind of say, like a, a, a problem that your customer has, are you putting that video or podcast or article or, you know, whatever the case may be into a digital marketing structure that is going to then bring people, you know, through the process, down the funnel, if you will, towards where it is you want them to go. Most companies, when we first meet them, have one of those two pieces in place. 
they're either doing the digital marketing, so they're running kind of, as you say, bland Facebook ads, and those are, you know, bland content, and that content is actually just filler. It's sort of like, we know we have to do content, we need to put something, we need to plug something into our snazzy digital marketing structure. We need to have a landing page where our Google ads go, we need to, you know, have a video. So they do that as a sort of an afterthought, and it's just, it's, it's wallpaper. Mm. Um, then on the other hand, you have, content, you have brands that are really kind of doing very interesting and creative content. They're really cutting down to the, the nub of what it is their audience wants and the questions that their audiences have. They're doing that sort of important piece of the content marketing puzzle, which is you know position yourself as an advisor, but they're not really doing anything then to retain these people. So they're, they're answering all the questions and we all love the romantic notion that if you're there and you know you answer the questions then you'll create a sort of a, a positive affiliation and that is true you know that's that's brand building 101 but honestly you probably need to do a little bit more then to kind of work them through to whether that's retargeting whether that's uh, first party data capture um whether it's something a little bit more overt like uh, you know an event or a q a or you know a webinar or even one-on-one -on -one consultations um you have to have the structures in place that make that content work hard. So, like I said, most are doing one of those two things, and as a result, they're not quite getting the full payback on it. Mm. Um, whereas, if you're taking, say, for instance, a podcast, and you're you mentioned like you're you're repurposing, you're getting the snippets out there. Mm. Say you wanted to take that to another level. Say you wanted to, um, you know, promote those snippets to certain verticals on LinkedIn and then retarget anyone who'd watch 75% of that um, with a landing page to maybe, you know- Webinar, yeah. Webinar, whatever the case may be. Now look, this, these are not advanced digital marketing tips. These are really kind of standard digital marketing tips. The difference is having the strength of content in the middle is going to make every step of that a lot more effective. And that's where you guys come in. And what I'll do is I'll leave links to your LinkedIn personal account below whether you're listening or watching this, and also the company website, Far From Avocados. But Aiden, we're coming near the end of the uh, recording slot. I do have one final question for you. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll probably be aware that the question is, if you were a decision maker in adding a mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why? So I've given this a good bit of thought. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that I came up with, certainly it wouldn't be anything like entrepreneurship or personal finance or anything like that. Entrepreneurship, for the reasons I said before, you know, it, it, I, always, I, I always say when people kind of ask me, what's your t you, to become an entrepreneur, you should try not to be one. And then mm. if you can't escape its magnetic pull, yeah. um, if you just can't not do it, then, then relent and do it. It's sort of devil's advocate sort of stuff. Um, and then I thought of things that, you know, uh, obviously an increased focus on, on uh, STEM subjects, they're going to be very important. Even sustainability and environmental studies, very important. But then I kind of thought, like, the kids who are learning environmental and sustainability studies in school today, by the time they're out of school, will be facing such radically different challenges that it will be, it, it's too functional, it's too sort mm. of... And then what I kind of landed on was if I'm if I'm the decision maker and I have I figure if I have the power to make this decision, I can I can maybe input on the on the more about uh, the overall structures of things. What I'd love to see is a situ is a situation by which. Subjects are categorized into maybe. 
sciences, humanities, um, arts, and uh, say theoretical or sort of philosophical the theory-based subjects. And that up to leaving cert level, students are required to take at least one subject from each of those. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is something that I've already touched on throughout this uh, conversation is that being a little bit into a lot of things yields ideas and understandings and openness that nothing else does. I feel in our education system at the moment, people are forced to make a decision at a very, very early stage that they are, you know, when you hear people saying, oh, I'm not really a, I, I wouldn't be very creative. And what they actually mean is I'm not very good at drawing, but they're a phenomenal problem solver when it comes to the sciences and they don't know that. Um, people are saying, oh, I'm not very artistic uh, or I'm not very, I'm not very scientific. Whereas they're a musician who is constantly, you know, operating all these different mathematical functions in their head all the time without even realizing it. Mm. It's by bringing these things together, you start to make connections that you never would have expected before. That's one part of it. The other part is, I think, would reduce the sort of the tribalism that we're increasingly kind of being, you know, forced into at, at, at early stages of our lives. That I'm a maths person, I'm a science person, I'm a, I'm a drama person, I'm a sports person, whatever, you have to be one or the other. Um, I really do think in all areas of life, the, as I said, even there about the content and the digital, the magic happens in the space between, the magic happens in the interaction between the, you know, uh, I don't know if you're going to get around to answering one of your, asking one of your other questions about like the, the must-have tool, but my answer was going to be Zapier because it's about connecting things that nobody else has ever connected before. Um, that's where we throw up the most interesting connections in life. So if I had to pick a subject, a specific subject, um, I'd probably say history, to be honest, just given the place we're in in the world at the moment. But uh, that's, you know, but really, I, I wouldn't pick a subject. I'd pick mm. a structure by which we have to do one of each of those. So we have latitude to choose things, but also we're being nudged in the direction of going outside of our comfort zone just that little bit longer. Interesting. I think it would make people more interesting uh, uh, as, as a person as well with, you know, um, one of the things in the early early days I'm going back to probably started secondary school I never really kept up kept, kept in touch with the news and there was conversations at the dinner table where it was like did you see this happened today over in this country or did you hear this person lost this or and I, I was always going where are you all getting this information from like I live in the same house as you I'm just going to school and coming back but I cannot get this information and I was always told you don't keep in touch with the news and I was like I don't really need to keep in touch with the news because it doesn't matter to me if this person's passed away or this person did this or that person did this and then what I probably clicked for me after the leave insert that I've, I've, I've made a solid effort to kind of stay in touch with you know what's going on whether there's an election or there's a there's a big case or yeah. uh, you know traveling and exploring the actual culture of the city rather than just staying within your kind of comfort zone. And I, and I do it because it makes me a more interesting person and I can have more, I can have better conversations with people when I meet them. I can, someone will, might say, Oh, I was at Yellowstone last month. And I was like, Oh, well, I was there too. I did this. Did you do that? Also, if you've been to Yellowstone, here's two other places you should go to as well. And I've always found that when you have, you know, the ability to 
tap into a variety of different subjects and topics and interests, you become a much more interesting person. Yeah, because otherwise our tendency is to gravitate towards our comfort zone. And mm. it will be, you know, that we have a natural aptitude for one thing. And, and actually, it's the, it's the things outside of that. It's the things it's the things that we don't really have to know, but we want to know anyway. It's the things that we that don't necessarily, like I said earlier on about the media. So it's the thing like sometimes the answer to a business question or a business problem I'm facing will come from an article that I read in The Guardian about football. Yeah. And it'll be about, you know, or it will come from a lot of the time, like so much of our ways of working are based around the musical workings of Paul McCartney. Like it's, it's crazy. And you bring all these things, you know, and because, because then what you're doing there, when you said like for you, it's a mixture of, you know, news and travel and things like that, you're creating a really unique mix that nobody else has. And if you have like all these people doing, you know, one of these four groups of subjects and the number of permutations is going to be so different that they're going to be making connections that nobody else is able to. Yeah, they're still going to be teenagers. Yeah, they're going to begrudge the subjects that they have to do that they don't want to. But similarly, you know, if we go back to me as an 18 year old making a snap decision on the rest of my life based on a, a, a bad audition, maybe a little bit of corralling or a little bit of sort of structural keeping them in you know, keep stopping them from succumbing to that fragility at that age of doubling down on the thing they know they're good at and they know they're safe at, at an age where you're constantly feeling vulnerable and under immense pressure to succeed, um, creating a structure whereby it's acceptable or mandatory to branch outside that, I think would just be brilliant for them, brilliant for society and brilliant for those of us who are going to be hiring them in the future. Couldn't agree more. Aidan, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure having you on the show today. I'll leave links again, as I mentioned, to the company website and both your personal LinkedIn account as well. If there's any other links that we've mentioned throughout that you want me to drop in, just drop me a message after the recording and I'll put them in below. But for today, Aidan Coughlin, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and I wish you continued success in the future. Likewise, Irene, thank you so much.